Book the Fifth, Part Ten of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Fifth, Part Ten. They next deviated to Amiens, intending to stay there only one night, but their schemes were deranged by the sudden illness of Charlotte. She had been looking unwell for a fortnight past, though with her usual self-abnegation she had made light of her ailment. Even now she declared she could go on, but this was said overnight, and in the morning it was abundantly evident that to move her was highly unadvisable. Still, she was not in serious danger, and, having called in a physician who pronounced rest indispensable, they prepared to remain in the old Picard capital two or three additional days. Mr. Parr thought he would take advantage of the halt to run up to Paris, leaving de Stancy in charge of the ladies. In more ways than in the illness of Charlotte, this day was the harbinger of a crisis. It was a summer evening without a cloud. Charlotte had fallen asleep in her bed, and Paula, who had been sitting by her, looked out into the Place Saint-Denis, which the hotel commanded. The lawn of the square was all ablaze with red and yellow clumps of flowers. The acacia trees were brightly green. The sun was soft and low. Tempted by the prospect, Paula went and put on her hat, and, arousing her aunt, who was nodding in the next room, to request her to keep an ear on Charlotte's bedroom, Paula descended into the Rue de Noyon alone, and entered the green enclosure. While she walked round, two or three little children, in charge of a nurse, trundled a large variegated ball along the grass, and it rolled to Paula's feet. She smiled at them, and endeavoured to return it by a slight kick. The ball rose in the air, and, passing over the back of a seat which stood under one of the trees, alighted in the lap of a gentleman hitherto screened by its boughs. The back and shoulders proved to be those of de Stancy. He turned his head, jumped up, and was at her side in an instant, a nettled flush having meanwhile crossed Paula's face. "'I thought you'd gone to the Autoy Promenade,' she had said hastily. "'I'm going to the cathedral.' obviously uttered, lest it should seem that she had seen him from the hotel windows and entered the square for his company. Of course, there is nothing else to go to here, even for roundheads. If you mean me by that, you are very much mistaken, said she testily. The roundheads were your ancestors, and they knocked down my ancestor's castle, and broke the stained glass and statuary of the cathedral, said de Stancy slyly. And now you go not only to a cathedral, but to a service of the unreformed church in it. In a foreign country it is different from home, said Paula in extenuation, and you of all men should not reproach me for turgification when it has been brought about by by my sympathies with with the troubles of the Lestances. Well, you know what I mean, she answered, with considerable anxiety not to be misunderstood. My liking for the old castle and what it contains and what it suggests. I declare I will not explain to you further. Why should I? I am not answerable to you. Paula's show of petulance was perhaps not wholly because she had appeared to seek him, but also from being reminded by his criticism that Mr. Woodwell's prophecy on her weekly succumbing to surroundings was slowly working out its fulfilment. She moved forward towards the gate at the further end of the square, beyond which the cathedral lay at a very short distance. Paula did not turn her head, and Estancy strolled slowly after her down the Rue du Collège. 
the day happened to be one of the church festivals and people were a second time flocking into the lofty monument of catholicism at its meridian paula vanished into the porch with the rest and almost catching the wicket as it flew back from her hand he too entered the high-shouldered edifice an edifice doomed to labour under the melancholy misfortune of seeming only half as vast as it really is and as truly as whimsically described by hein as a monument built with the strength of titans and decorated with the patience of dwarfs Stancy walked up the nave so close beside her as to touch her dress but she would not recognize his presence the darkness that evening had thrown over the interior which was scarcely broken by the few candles dotted about being a sufficient excuse if she required one miss power Stancy said at last i am coming to the service with you he received the intelligence without surprise and he knew she had been conscious of him all the way Paula went no further than the middle of the nave, where there was hardly a soul, and took a chair beside a solitary rushlight which looked amid the vague gloom of the inaccessible architecture like a lighthouse at the foot of tall cliffs. He put his hand on the next chair, saying, Do you object? Not at all, she replied, and he sat down. Suppose we go into the choir, said Stancy presently. Nobody sits out here in the shadows. This is sufficiently near, and we have a candle, Paula murmured. Before another minute had passed, the candle flame began to drown in its own grease, slowly dwindled, and went out. I suppose that means I am to go into the choir in spite of myself. Heaven is on your side, said Paula. And rising, they left their now totally dark corner, and joined the noiseless, shadowy figures who in twos and threes kept passing up the nave. Within the choir there was a blaze of light, partly from the altar, and more particularly from the image of the saint whom they had assembled to honour, which stood, surrounded by candles and a thicket of flowering plants, some way in advance of the footpace. A secondary radiance from the same source was reflected upward into their faces by the polished marble pavement, except when interrupted by the shady forms of the officiating priests. When it was over, and the people were moving off, Stancy and his companion went towards the saint, now besieged by numbers of women anxious to claim the respective flower-pots they had lent for the decoration. As each struggled for her own, seized and marched off with it, Paula remarked, This rather spoils the solemn effect of what has gone before. I perceive you are a harsh Puritan. No, Captain Stancy, why would you speak so? I am far too much otherwise. I've grown to be so much of your way of thinking that I accuse myself, am an accused by others, of being worldly and half and half and other dreadful things. It isn't that at all. They were now walking down the nave, preceded by the sombre figures with the pot-flowers, who were just visible in the rays that reached them through the distant choir-scream at their back. While above, the grey night sky and stars looked in upon them through the high clerestory windows. Do be a little more of my way of thinking, rejoined Stancy passionately. Don't, don't speak, she said rapidly. There are Millie and Champreau. Millie was one of the maids, and Champreau, the courier and valet, who had been engaged by Abner Power. They had been sitting behind the other pair throughout the service, and indeed knew rather more of the relations between Paula and Stancy than Paula knew herself. 
Hastening on, the two latter went out and walked together silently up the short street. The Place Saint-Denis was now lit up. Lights shone from the hotel windows, and the world without the cathedral had so far advanced in nocturnal change that it seemed as if they had been gone from it for hours. Within the hotel they found the change even greater than without. Mrs. Goodman met them halfway up the stairs. Poor Charlotte is worse, she said, quite feverish and almost delirious. Paula reproached herself with, Why did I go away? The common interest of Distancy and Paula and the sufferer at once reproduced an ease between them as nothing else could have done. A physician was again called in, who prescribed certain draughts and recommended that someone should sit up with her that night. If Paula allowed demonstrations of love to escape her towards anybody, it was towards Charlotte, and her instinct was at once to watch by the invalid's couch herself, at least for some hours. It being unnecessary to call in a regular nurse unless she should sicken further. But I will sit with her, said Distancy. Surely you had better go to bed. Paula would not be persuaded, and thereupon Distancy, saying he was going into the town for a short time before retiring, left the room. The last omnibus returned from the last train, and the inmates of the hotel retired to rest. Meanwhile, a telegram had arrived for Captain Distancy, but as he had not yet returned, it was put in his bedroom with the directions to the night porter to remind him of its arrival. Paula sat on with the sleeping Charlotte. Presently she retired into the adjacent sitting-room with a book and flung herself on a couch leaving the door open between her and her charge, in case the latter should awake. While she sat, a new breathing seemed to mingle with the regular sound of Charlotte's that reached her through the doorway. She turned quickly and saw her uncle standing behind her. "'Oh, I thought you were in Paris,' said Paula. "'I've just come from there. I could not stay. Something has occurred to my mind about this affair.' His strangely marked visage now more noticeable from being warm with fatigue, had a spectral effect by the nightlight. What affair? This marriage. Paula, Nostanti is a good fellow enough, but you must not accept him just yet. Paula did not answer. Do you hear? You must not accept him, repeated her uncle, till I have been to England and examined into matters. I start in an hour's time by the ten minutes past two train. This is something very new. Yes, tis new, he murmured, relapsing into his Dutch manner. You must not accept until something is made clear to me, something about a queer relationship. I've come from Paris to say so. Uncle, I don't understand this. I am my own mistress in all matters, and though I don't mind telling you I have by no means resolved to accept him, the question of her marriage is especially a woman's own affair. Her uncle stood irresolute for a moment, as if his convictions were more than his proofs. "'I say no more at present,' he murmured. "'Can I do anything for you about a new architect?' "'Appoint Havel.' "'Very well. Good night.' Then he left her. In a short time she heard him go down and out of the house to cross to England by the morning steamboat. With a little shrug, as if she resented his interference in so delicate a point, she settled herself down anew to her book. One, two, three hours passed, when Charlotte awoke, but soon slumbered sweetly again, 
Millie had stayed up for some time, lest her mistress should require anything. But the girl being sleepy, Paula sent her to bed. It was a lovely night of early summer, and, drawing aside the window curtains, she looked out upon the flowers and trees of the Place, now quite visible, for it was nearly three o'clock, and the morning light was growing strong. She turned her face upwards. Except in the case of one bedroom, all the windows on that side of the hotel were in darkness. The room being rather close, she left the casement ajar, and opening the door, walked out upon the staircase landing. A number of caged canaries were kept here, and she observed in the dim light of the landing lamp how snugly their heads were all tucked in. On returning to the sitting-room again, she could hear that Charlotte was still slumbering, and this encouraging circumstance disposed her to go to bed herself. Before, however, she had made a move, a gentle tap came to the door. Paula opened it. There, in the faint light by the sleeping canaries, stood Charlotte's brother. How is she now? he whispered. Sleeping soundly, said Paula. That's a blessing. I've not been to bed. I came in late and have now come down to know if I had not better take your place. Nobody is required, I think, but you can judge for yourself. Up to this point they had conversed in the doorway of the sitting-room, which Distancy now entered, crossing it to Charlotte's apartment. He came out from the latter at a pensive pace. "'She's doing well,' he said gently. "'You have been very good to her. "'Was the chair I saw by her bed the one you have been sitting in all night?' "'I sometimes sat there, sometimes here.' "'I wish I could have sat beside you and held your hand. "'I speak frankly. "'To excess. "'And why not? "'I do not wish to hide from you any corner of my breast, "'futile as candour may be. "'Just heaven!' For what reason is it ordered that courtship in which soldiers are usually so successful should be a failure with me? Your lack of foresight chiefly in indulging feelings that were not encouraged. That, and my uncle's indiscreet permission to you to travel with us, have precipitated our relations in a way that I could neither foresee nor avoid. Though of late I have had apprehensions that it might come to this. You vex and disturb me by such words of regret. Not more than you vex and disturb me. But you cannot hate the man who loves you so devotedly. I've said before I don't hate you. I repeat that I am interested in your family and its associations because of its complete contrast with my own. You might have added, and I am additionally interested just now because my uncle has forbidden me to be. But you don't care enough for me personally to save my happiness. Paula hesitated. From the moment Distancy confronted her, she felt that this nocturnal conversation was to be a grave business. The cathedral clock struck three. I have thought once or twice, she said with a naivety unusual in her, that if I could be sure of giving peace and joy to your mind by becoming your wife, I ought to endeavour to do so and make the best of it, merely as a charity. But I believe that feeling is a mistake. Your discontent is constitutional and would go on just the same whether I accepted you or no. My refusal of you is purely an imaginary grievance. Not if I think otherwise. Oh, no, she murmured, with a sense that the place was very lonely and silent. If you think it otherwise, I suppose it is otherwise. My darling, my Paula, he said, seizing her hand, do promise me something. You must, indeed. Captain Stancy she said, trembling and turning away. 
Capitus Tansy. She tried to withdraw her fingers, then faced him, exclaiming in a firm voice a third time, Captain Destancy, let go my hand, for I tell you I will not marry you. Good God, he cried, dropping her hand. What have I driven you to say in your anger? Retracted, oh, retracted! Don't urge me further, as you value my good opinion. To lose you now is to lose you forever. Come, please answer. I won't be compelled, she interrupted with vehemence. I am resolved not to be yours. Not to give you an answer tonight. Never, never will I be reasoned out of my intention. And I say, I won't answer you tonight. I should never have let you be so much with me, but for pity of you. And now it has come to this. She had sunk into a chair, and now leaned upon her hand and buried her face in her handkerchief. It never caused her any such agitation as this before. You stab me with your words, continued Destancy. The experience I have had with you is without parallel, Paula. It seems like a distracting dream. I won't be hurried by anybody. That may mean anything, he said, with a perplexed, passionate air. Well, mine is a fallen family, and we must abide caprices. Would to heaven it were extinguished. What was extinguished? she murmured. The distances. Here am I, a homeless wanderer, living on my pay. In the next room lies she, my sister, a poor, little, fragile, feverish invalid with no social position and hardly a friend. We, too, represent the Stancy line, and I wish we were behind the iron door of our own vaulted sleeping green. It can be seen by looking at us and our circumstances that we cry for the earth and oblivion. Captain Stancy, it is not like that, I assure you, sympathised Paula with damp eyelashes. I love Charlotte too dearly for you to talk like that, indeed. I don't want to marry you exactly, and yet I cannot bring myself to say I permanently reject you, because I remember you are Charlotte's brother, and I do not wish to be the cause of any morbid feelings in you which would ruin your future prospects. My dear life, what is it you doubt in me? Your earnestness not to do me harm makes it all the harder for me to think of never being more than a friend. Well, I have not positively refused she exclaimed, in mixed tones of pity and distress. Let me think it over a little while. It is not generous to urge so strongly before I can collect my thoughts, and of this midnight time. Darling, forgive it. There, I'll say no more. He then offered to sit up in her place for the remainder of the night. But Paula declined, assuring him that she meant to stay only another half-hour, after which nobody would be necessary. He had already crossed the landing to ascend to his room when she stepped after him and asked if he had received his telegram. No, said Destancy, nor have I heard of one. Paula explained that it was put in his room, that he might see it the moment he came in. It matters very little, he replied, since I shall see it now. Good night, dearest. Good night, he added tenderly. He gravely shook her head. It is not for you to express yourself like that she answered. Good night, Captain Destancy. He went up the stairs to the second floor, and Paula returned to the sitting-room. Having left a light burning, Destancy proceeded to look for the telegram, and find it on the carpet where it had been swept from the table. When he had opened the sheet, a sudden solemnity overspread his face. He sat down, rested his elbow on the table, and his forehead on his hands. Captain Destancy did not remain thus long, 
Rising, he went softly downstairs. The grey morning had by this time crept into the hotel, rendering a light no longer necessary. The old clock on the landing was within a few minutes of four, and the birds were hopping up and down their cages and wetting their bills. He tapped at the sitting-room, and she came instantly. "'But I told you it was not necessary,' she began. "'Yes, but the telegram,' he said hurriedly. "'I wanted to let you know first that it is very serious. "'Paula, my father is dead. "'He died suddenly yesterday, and I must go at once. Uh, "'About Charlotte and how to let her know.' "'She must not be told yet,' said Paula. "'Sir William, dead.' "'You think we had better not tell her just yet?' said Distancy anxiously. That's what I wanted to consult you about, if you don't mind my intruding. Certainly I don't, she said. They continued the discussion for some time, and it was decided that Charlotte should not be informed of what had happened till the doctor had been consulted, Paula promising to account for her brother's departure. Distancy then prepared to leave for England by the first morning train, and roused to the night porter, which functionary, having packed off Abner Powell, was discovered asleep on the sofa of the landlord's parlour. At half-past five, Paula, who in the interim had been pensively sitting with her hand to her chin, quite forgetting that she had meant to go to bed, heard wheels without and looked from the window. A fly had been brought round, and one of the hotel servants was in the act of putting up a portmanteau, with Distancia's initials upon it. A minute afterwards, the captain came to her door. I thought you had not gone to bed after all. I was anxious to see you off, said she, since neither of the others is awake, and you wish me not to rouse them. Quite right, you are very good, and lowering his voice. Paula, it is a sad and solemn time with me. Will you grant me one word, not on our last sad subject, but on the previous one, before I part with you to go and bury my father? Certainly, she said in gentle accents. Then have you thought over my position? Will you at last have pity upon my loneliness by becoming my wife? Paula sighed deeply and said, Yes. Your hand upon it. She gave him her hand. He held it a few moments, then raised it to his lips and was gone. When Mrs Goodman rose, she was informed of Sir William's death and of his son's departure. And the captain is now Sir William de Stancy, she exclaimed. Really, Paula, since you would be Lady de Stancy by marrying him, I almost think... Hush, aunt. Well, what are you writing there? Only entering in my diary that I accepted him this morning, for pity's sake, in spite of Uncle Abner. They say it was for the title, but no, it was not. I don't care. End of Book the Fifth, Part Ten